Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. Now, that's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. All children, we believe, have the right to a first-rate public education at public expense in this country, in this wonderful democratic, liberal democratic country of ours. And we hope to keep it that way. Uh, Public education should also be the only one that is publicly funded because it's the only one that's publicly accountable. It should be public in ownership. We should own our schools, not have private-public partnerships or privatisation in any shape or form, and our governments should be held responsible for the provision of a first-rate public system throughout this country. Well, that's the ideal position, uh, and it's worth fighting for, and it needs to be fought for in the current climate of privatisation. I was just thinking the other night, we're going on and on and on about electricity and the energy crisis, which has been created by governments who have privatised our energy. And they are now trying to privatise our public education system. So we're just not going to let it happen. We have a website at www.adogs.info. And here is our press release 720. Well-being, massaging the self-confidence of the offspring of the wealthy. When, a few years since, I attended a graduation ceremony at Melbourne University for a Master's in Education, I found queues of graduates up in the Wilson Hall at Melbourne University receiving degrees in something called student well-being. These were students who were getting a master's by uh, attending classes rather than by thesis. And there was a, they were mainly teachers, and they appeared to be teachers from private schools. There was a smaller group receiving a master's degrees in hardcore subjects like uh, educational psychology or classroom management or something like that, the usual kind of things you expect at a university. But by far the largest number mentioned this word, well-being. Mickey Mouse, I thought. And these degrees appeared to be done in collaboration with the Australian Catholic University because Melbourne University doesn't appear to produce teachers anymore 
It only deals mainly with these postgraduate degrees for existing teachers. Now, I was mystified. What on earth was going on? And what exactly is student well-being? But thanks to Brett Henneberry and his article in The Educator of September the 1st, 2017, entitled Private School Unveils Gendered Wellbeing Centre, and it's, you can see it online at The Educator, I have received some enlightenment. <laughs> it seems that these graduates were being prepared for the never-ending public and private largesse and the consequent resource boom in the wealthy private schools of Melbourne. The courses, oh, well, actually also of Geelong, because Geelong Grammar was the first, I think, that had this wellbeing centre. The courses were designed for the children of the Melbourne elite. Now, Brett Hennebury has reported on a groundbreaking new wellbeing centre at the Merton Hall campus of Melbourne Girls Grammar. This is an Anglican school for girls aged 3 to 18. And it's called, this wellbeing centre is called the Artemis Centre. Artemis, as a matter of interest, was the goddess of the hunt, forests and hills, the moon and archery. So here one catches a whiff of 19th century British classical, or is it class consciousness? We are informed, and here I am just... um, telling you what Mr. Hanbury told everybody else. This Artemis Centre blends academic, co-curricular and well-being programs for the school students and acts as a foundational part of the school's forward-thinking Senior Years Program, which was launched in February 2017. The new centre, which was officially opened by the Victorian Governor, Linda Dessau, today... Uh, according, this was on September the 1st, uh, includes a 20, and I suppose it still does, it includes a 25 metre multi-purpose hydraulic swimming pool. Not just a swimming pool, but a 25 metre multi-purpose hydraulic swimming pool. <laughs> Whatever that is, I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not an ex- expert on swimming pools. Also, an outdoor seated amphitheatre and a dedicated fitness hub called Me Zones for a small group and one-to-one well-being coaching. The school's principal, Catherine Misson, said that the Artemis Centre, which she refers to as a gendered building, was designed by a group of female architects who took a holistic view of girls and their needs into consideration. These included factors such as transparency and privacy within the building, the privacy of the amenities and the interconnectedness of adults and students in the building through social spaces. These things really provided that sense of community connectedness that we wanted, Misson told the educator. Jean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you there. Because um, what you mentioned about um, hydraulic swimming pools, mm-hmm. I can tell you what they are. Oh, good. Um, a hydraulic swimming pool is 
a swimming pool that has a hydraulic floor that converts the entire room from a swimming pool into a normal floor. The floor of the swimming pool rises up, the water drains away, and so the, the space becomes a multi-use space. As to say, it's just a normal room, but then you press the button and the swimming pool appears and can be of any depth that you like. The idea is it's a space-saving device. It is the accessory de jour for the super wealthy of the world. If you don't just get a swimming pool anymore, if you're very wealthy, you get a hydraulic uh, swimming pool. It is, they cost well, around the world millions and millions of dollars. It, it's what, um, oh, I don't know, it, it's what Richard Branson would have in his hideaway home in the Virgin Islands or something like that. Well, I hope all of these girls get to catch a, a Richard Branson. Oh, my goodness, man, that's a terrible because thing to say. they're being educated into enormous <laughs> expectations of living in a, in a five-star hotel all their lives. Anyway, I, I, I just for our listeners' sake, because I'm sure I had no idea until I just raised it, and I'm sure, our, um, yeah. So it's not just a matter of rich kids having swimming pools anymore. It's rich kids, rich kids having swimming pools that you'd find in a bond lair. It's it, you know probably got sharks in it or something to <laughs> get rid of all the poor students. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. Well, they're going to have problems. These girls, when they don't have these things, uh, when they expect well-being as being part of having these things. Actually, leaving school might negatively affect their well-being. Yes. That would, that would be terrible. Yes, yes. What are they being educated for, one wonders. Now, I say to enhance the health aspect of this centre, if I can just continue with the sales pitch. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry Mr. to interrupt. Hannity? I'm sorry to interrupt you, Gina. It was just I thought it would be a piece of public service to let everyone know <laughs> what a hydraulic <laughs> swimming pool actually. What, where our taxpayers' money is going. I'm very, very, uh, you know, I'm very happy that you have enlightened me on that matter. <laughs> Because I'm afraid, you know, I'm just not up with these kind of things. Now, to enhance the health aspect of the centre, we're told that the school employs wellbeing coaches as a proactive, dedicated specialist workforce to mentor the girls at a time and frequency of their own choosing. In the Artemis Centre, the girls have access to a schedule of activities that are hosted every day and simply go online and book themselves into an activity that fits into their day or week. The girls avail themselves of that at a time that makes sense for their well-being, Listen explained. And all of this is nested within the bigger picture of what we've done with our architecture for schooling, which allows our senior girls to put well-being in their day and craft their well-being provisions. Well, I've had enough of the sales pitch. I'll give the rest of the sales pitch to Robert to look at later. But the sales pitch continued. But what the dogs found of particular interest were the comments on Twitter from public school supporters because uh, I only found out about this through a Twitter, a little bit of Twitter that I got from David Zingnia from Monash University. Uh, And Chris Sleep, when she read all of this, uh, replying to um, David Zingnia, she just said, it makes me angry. And David Zingnia retweeted, don't get angry, get even. Then Marie Party replied, this is a marketing exercise, right? Not journalism. And David Zingier replied, indeed, it's all about marketing and envy. Our private school's better than yours. Look at what we've got. 
Anthony Luck tweeted to Zingnia on September the 2nd, how much Gonski money does this school fraudulently receive from taxpayers? Uh, and he looked at Malcolm Turnbull. We, we, need, we need real needs-based funding. And David Zingnia responded, 3,500 per student each year and over 2.5 million capital funding from public. Fees over 28,000 per annum obscene. Verity Chambers on September the 3rd uh, tweeted, how much funding per annum does a kid at a government school receive? Now, in answer to the question, how much public money does this school receive, dogs went to the My School website and discovered the following. There are 933 students at this school. There's 122 teaching staff and 80 non-teaching staff. The school's ICSIA, which is the Index of Community Socio-Educational Advantage, is 1,180. That's a lot. That's That's very high. With only 2% from the bottom quarter of advantage and 78% from the the top. I don't think it tops um, Scots College, who we were (laughs) looking at last week. No, no, actually, 1,180 is, I think, Scots is about 1,186. So it's, it's up there. Yeah. It's up there. It's up there. Definitely up there. Now, the following table indicates that it's far from either average or egalitarian in 2015. We've mentioned the 2% and the 78%. Um, and the 2%, the Australian distribution of people in the lower quartile, of course, is 25%. The middle quarters are interesting. In the sort of lower middle of 25%, there's only 6%. And uh, in the upper quartile of middle class, um, again, 25% in the, in, the, in the average of the Australian population, they've got 14%. So then the middle classes aren't that well represented here either. You know those, those, those parents that sacrifice? Yeah. I'm assuming the 2% would be scholarship. Perhaps some of those um, middle-class children also are scholarships. I don't know. But the top quarter is pretty, pretty high. This is not a school where the disadvantaged would have a sense of well-being, I suggest. They would be vastly outnumbered and could hardly belong. Australian government recurrent funding is approximately 2.6 million or 2,847 per students and the state government funding approximately 600,000 or 657 per student. So um, Zingmi is right when he says that they get about 3,500 per student from us taxpayers. And that tops up very nicely that 28,295 per student and the parent and the total income, excluding the income from capital, government capital grants, was 31,000 odd, sorry, 31 million odd, or 33,955 per pupil. Then in the years, let's have a look at capital expenditure because we're looking at this Artemis Centre and where on earth they got all this money from to have this wonderful swimming pool. In the years 2009 to 2015, the school received approximately 2.504 million in federal taxpayer funding 
and the school has taken out approximately 6.1 million in new school loans. And I think the state government helps them with the interest on that. Um, actually, John, uh, Jean, I should say, um, just to point out, uh, which wellness centre are you speaking about? I'm talking about the Artemis Centre at the um, Melbourne Girls Grammar School and Anglican School in Melbourne, okay. in South Yarra. Right. Well, I don't know where they got their money from, but I can tell you where Geelong Grammar got their money from for their wellness centre or their, oh, well, yeah. their well-being centre. Um, we're talking about it now, but this actually started around about eight years ago, and Geelong Grammar were the first. Um, after the after a little break, I'll, I'll explain exactly what this whole positive psychology and wellness thing is all about for our listeners. Cause yeah, it is, well, cause you cause went through with some yes, of these students, in, didn't you? Yes, I, I know all about it from the inside. Um, oh. But the Jean Grammer got themselves a $4 million special purpose one-off capital works grant to build the very first wellness centre in Australia. And they got that money from, yes, you guessed it, state and federal governments. It was one-off. You want to build a wellness centre, we'll give you the millions of dollars to do it because of the scourge of depression and anxiety amongst teenagers across the nation. Millions of dollars were best spent by building a building at, well, you guessed it, Geelong Grammar's Correo campus. So the very first one, the very first trial one, was built by Geelong Grammar and it was built at taxpayers' expense. What you're talking about here, Jean, is catch-up. It's, 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 it's exactly what these people were describing. It's the politics of envy. If they've got one, we have to have one too. And I'll describe what these centres actually do in detail and why they do it. But I'm um, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Jean, but Geelong Grammar started an arms race and you're now talking about the mm. catch-up politics of the other wealthy private schools in Melbourne's inner east. Thank you very much, Robert, and we'll, we'll get back to you later because there's a lot of questions uh, that I'm sure you can enlighten us further on. As I said, I was completely mystified by this whole well-being thing. Um, but, <coughs> yes, um, there's a mysterious line in this um, My School website analysis of what this school's got going for it, and it's entitled Other. It's telling me absolutely nothing, but... It's a very big number. It's a 17.9 million for capital expenditure, which expands the total capital expenditure on this school in the years 2009 to 2015 to approximately 33 million. Remember, Scots College had 77 million. Well, this one has spent 33 million from 209 to 2015 in those years and these are figures particularly that mysterious other 17.9 million which principals of public schools could only dream about Mm. I'd say part of it at least would come from uh, parents who are getting taxation deductions giving uh, money to building uh, building funds and others would be money from endowments <coughs> but I would also suggest that 17.9 million is also a figure which many vicars dealing with heritage listed Anglican churches falling down around them could only pray about and I suggest that um, I know one church at least like St Beautiful St James down in King Street that could do quite a lot with that kind of funding uh, because it is a heritage building and it belongs to the whole people really. It's part of our history. 
So that's all I have to say. But we'll have a bit of music and then Robert will come back with a few facts and figures because uh, when you put these kind of figures and this kind of idea of well-being next to what's actually going on with the high school situation in Melbourne because the middle classes are starting to wake up about where the value lies in secondary education, uh, it's very, very interesting indeed. There's certainly a lot of wasted money in education. On that, I will agree with Mr Birmingham. What he's going to do about it is another matter. But let's have a bit of music, shall we? Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Yay! Il Traviatore by Giuseppe Verdi. That's uh, Squilia Echeghi. A lovely piece of music. Yeah, it gets everyone up and running around uh, before we get back into the next bit, which is to, we're talking about wellness centres, well-being centres, student well-being, positive psychology. Um, yeah, okay, I can talk about this a bit because I've been through psychology at, uh, at the best university in, in the world, which apparently is Melbourne University. Um, it's a wonderful place, I'm sure. 
Um, so I, 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 we will come to exactly what this whole wellness thing is. But it's a fascinating, um, broader brush approach to the whole question of what on earth is going on with these wellness centres. Now, as I mentioned, started off with Geelong Grammar back in the, oh, the late 2000s um, when they built the first one. So they had one. If they have one, it's all about attempting to, to deal with the scourge of depression and anxiety in teenagers. And the federal government decided in their wisdom the best way to deal with the scourge of depression, anxiety and potentially suicide in teenagers in Australia is to give $4 million to Geelong Grammar to build a wellness centre. Um, I would argue that that's the best use of taxpayers' money. But um, when I went to the launch of this wellness centre, I was encountered by an extraordinary smugness that would not countenance the idea that the money could have been spent somewhere else. Um, But anyway, we'll come back to that. Wellness centres are part of the new arms race. Um, the new arms race is basically the top end of town. You know, we've been talking about the Scots Colleges and the PLCs and various other places. Schools building things in the hope that students will come and indeed pay more money. Um, Samantha Hutchinson, who is a writer for the Australian, a Murdoch, Murdoch Press, she's a state uh, political reporter in Melbourne. And she's weighed into this by talking about a fellow called Jock Langley. And now Jock Langley is when he, what he described as the perfect storm. He's a Melbourne property agent and he has three children and he puts them all through different high-end private schools, which means that he has to pay $100,000 per year. Um, and that's both he and his wife have to pay $100,000 per year to educate their children in Australia. Uh, well, yeah, uh, whether Jock's being wise or not wise is a question. But for Jock, um, who has drunk the Kool-Aid of the private school system, um, it's obviously no question that he couldn't possibly do this because he has to do this because that's how you show love for your children, I'm sure, from Jock's point of view. I don't know Jock, but I would imagine he would say something along those lines. That's a pretty standard argument as to why aspirational people send their children to these very expensive private schools. You get a good education, and if you have the money, you need to spend it, otherwise you don't love your children. Anyway, this phenomenal outlay, actually, it's $100,000 a year for three kids, um, prompted um, Georgie, uh, that's Jock's wife, to return to work as a midwife and the family has to now make sacrifices. There's no new cars, there's no new home renovations or anything like that. Education is their family priority, poor Jock and Georgia. Yet, um, Jock, who grew up in Western New South Wales and spent his early years learning via correspondence, and the school of the air wouldn't actually change things for quids. He says, I look back on what my own education was and what we had to put up with in rural Australia, a way to begin with, and I don't think I realised that school fees would increase that much, however. I don't think anyone did. Um, Over the past year, independent schools, this is 2016-17, independent school fees rose by 4%. Some schools increased their fees by as much as 6.5%, and this outstrips inflation by almost six times, and it also outstrips wage growth by more than three times. And this is according to EdStart, which provides the financials um, for private school fees. They thought that the grandparents would pay. Well, it's a steep jump in 2017, but it has flattened out considerably um, from the annual 13% rises that happened before the GFC in 2008, and that actually knocked the top off private school enrolment growth um, that was going all the way through the 1990s into the, into the 2000s. The GFC happened, and things slowed down for the high end. They had a problem. People didn't have the money, and they're at the top end of the market. They are a luxury product, so therefore they had problems. Now, while the rate of fee growth is now easing compared to what it used, be, used to be, it's still more than uh, CPI, education experts and school financing outfits talk of an unsettling development. 
Private schools have always sought voluntary donations to help finance swimming pools, concert halls and gyms. Now, building fund contributions are becoming compulsory for parents as the scale of infrastructure ratchets up into an arms race between schools seeking to combat soft enrolment growth. Ah, that explains my other 17-point-odd million for for the... um the girls' grammar, doesn't it? Mm. Now, a survey of 12 independent schools across the country revealed that more than $550 million of capital works in planning is in planning or under construction. This is the 12, 12 independent schools, $550 million planning and under construction, ranging from observatories to teach students about stars to architect-designed wellness centres built for reflection, meditation, contemplation, and, of course, now we've discovered um, hydraulic swimming pools. Now, education expert John Black of the Australian Development Strategies Group says at the top end of the market, enrolments get very competitive. Parents will usually base the bulk of their decisions on academics, um, but facilities also become a way that schools can distinguish themselves from the rest of the pack. And distinguishing themselves, these high-end schools are. For instance, PLC in Perth is midway through the construction of an $8 million lighthouse wellness centre with meditation and contemplative rooms, consulting rooms for visiting specialists, a rooftop garden growing fresh herbs and produce, and dedicated nutrition areas. It's not the canteen anymore, it's a nutrition area. But it's small change compared with schools in the East Coast. As we've discussed in detail, Melbourne Girls Grammar is midway through raising money for its $23 million Artemis Health and Wellbeing Centre, which is they describing, as I think Jay mentioned, the epicentre for the school's health and wellbeing agenda. All, with all the stuff that Jean's described. Now, Sydney, up in Sydney, Sydney Shore School, and Jean knows more about this than I do, is forging ahead with a $53 million physical education centre with a new indoor pool. The old one lacked the capacity for water polo, apparently. The new indoor courts will cater to the school's sizable population of basketball players who can't play on the outdoor courts when it rains. I wonder if they enrol the, all of the children of the vicars in Sydney. Oh, I don't know school. about that. I don't yeah. know, Jean. I, I, seriously, I don't know. But Shaw's development application is of such a magnitude that it sits alongside major government-financed upgrades to the Opera House and the Sydney Football Stadium on the state's significant projects register. St Catharines at Waverley is also on the register as it proceeds with a $63 million building program which includes a new auditorium with a stage and opera pit big enough to house, house the world's biggest orchestras. MLC Burwood nabs an honourable mention by proposing to spend a mere $34 million on its new senior school campus. Many of the projects are replacing old facilities rather than expanding the schools. Melbourne Girls Grammar demolished the Tom Thomas Gym to make way for the Artemis Project, for instance. Some projects replicate pre-existing infrastructure, but in different locations. Victoria's Geelong Grammar is advancing plans for a wellness centre at its Turak campus, as well as the one down at Karaya, to the value of $8.5 million. It will have, and I get this right, a centre for positive nutrition, a health cafe and spaces for dance, movement, mindfulness and meditation set around a six-lane swimming pool. The centre will come in addition to the existing... $16 $16 million Hanbury Centre for Wellbeing on its Correo campus, which I referred to. Many agree that facilities are one way a school can set itself apart from the pack. 
Building a wellness centre sends a powerful message about how seriously a school takes mental health. Likewise, great sports facilities often speak to a school's sporting prowess. But more quietly, experts confirm investments in facilities boost the marketability of the school. And quote here, there is no doubt there is a direct correlation between new infrastructure and a spike in enrolments. A former head teacher who declined to be named told the Australian. And I quote, there's always parents and students who will base their decisions on a school on the look and feel of their facilities. Marks and academic performance are the most important factor, but don't underestimate the number of kids who, given the choice, will say no to a school because it doesn't have a swimming pool. PLC Perth headmistress Kate Horwin says the school, which recently removed its senior school campus, um, sorry, not removed, it renovated its senior school campus. And by the way, you should go and have a look at the PLC Perth senior school campus. It's like the National Gallery of Victoria. It's amazing. Um, they're, they're actually feeling the impact in PLC from parents more interested in the school because of the new infrastructure. The, the, the principal of PLC Perth says, for sure. Programs like this and facilities have an impact on enrolments, she says. They want an independent school education and they choose PLC because they know we're focused on well-being and they know the initiatives like this are what, are what really matters. Now, not all parents were immediately supportive. There was early scepticism about the projects and parents contacted the principal to ask why the new centre was necessary. And she replied... With big projects, you always run the risk of being criticised, but there are questions about what the centre would be and why did we need this centre like this. But we welcome questions from the community. When you're leading the way, people are always going to question your decisions. But that's not a reason to back down. You have to show leadership. Parents have asked the same question at other schools, even though they remain broadly supportive of the new facility. Now, I could go on. But a study by Yale economist says Zitherman during 2011 found that for every one, sorry, for every $10,000 spent on construction per student in poor urban areas, poor urban areas in the U.S. resulted in large gains in reading scores for elementary and middle school students, and enrolment gains of 4.4% for every $10,000 per student, compared to the average gain of house prices. An average gain, by the way, of house prices in the school catchment area of 1.3%. So you improve the value of houses by spending money on students. Taken together, our student outcomes, house prices and enrolment results suggest that families, in particular families with children, place a high value on a school infrastructure investment. So, But that's for poor students. And I could go on. But in response to this, and it's a very interesting article, I, I do suggest you read it. It's actually published back in uh, January 17th in The Australian. Um, but in response to this, there's a couple of interesting comments, conservative comments, and I think this is fascinating. Now, bear in mind, before I tell you what conservative is talking about, this is not a left-wing article. This is an article about investment procedures and what's happening with at the upper end of the education market in Australia. In the Murdoch press, too. It's in the Murdoch press, and it's basically saying all this money is being spent in an arms race, and it's not actually for the benefit of parents. It's for the benefit of the schools themselves. There's no question about taxpayers' funding, do or not going. It's not, not a dog's perspective. It's just a purely business perspective, oh. and hinting that, in fact, parents are being ripped off. But, but Conservative mentions the phenomena of private schools, the phenomena of private schools is probably obliquely addressing the concern all too often felt in relation to public education and the associated state and federal policies that have made public education a distant second 
to independent and private systems. Sure, we see some great results in select high schools, but this is of little benefit to the average student. Nor is the for-profit training provider system, as we have seen all too often when profit is the key objective, usually ripping off visa students and others really battling to get workplace skills. We need to come to terms with the proposition that university is not for everyone, nor is the best place to develop workplace and competency and skills. Until policies place public education in the high-order priority and reduce government funding leaking into the private system, we will not have a public education for kindergarten, primary, secondary and tertiary Australia so desperately needs for becoming a competitive country on a sustained basis with strong employment. TAFE needs to be reinstated as as the training provider in universities directed to the national needs-based approach. It is not too early in early secondary to begin streaming students, according to Conservative, who where appropriately have the workplace training preparations for their environments. Now, Conservative says, I'm not advocating a termination of funding for non-government schools, but I do believe a re-established public system is the best way for most boys and girls in Australia to be educated, with the funding available um, taken from the private system and put in the public system. So these are economists talking. These are business people. These are saying it's just common sense. I I found that absolutely fascinating. Um, Look, I have promised, and I will deliver, after a little bit more music, I'll just describe exactly what these wellness centres are. What's going on inside them? Why are they there? Why is all this money being spent? And what's, what's the goss? I think it's unhealthy for children.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Oh, lovely bit of Schubert there. We took some time just to calm us all down before we... Well, actually, the reason we played that Schubert and the reason, reason we calmed everyone down is because we're now we're going to talk about student well-being. We're going to talk about wellness. We're going to talk about all the things that these very expensive centres at these very high-end private schools are all about. With master's degrees in this well-being oh, from Melbourne uh, University. Melbourne, oh, that's the Australian Catholic University and Melbourne University working in tandem to produce these, these graduates. What is well-being? What are, what are wellness centres? What's going on? Well, if you had a centre that was full of Eastern meditation and uh, Reiki and um, uh, reflexology and all that sort of stuff to have alternative healing, and you, know, you, you wouldn't get money for that, so that's not what they are. They're not that. There's a fellow called Seligman, a very famous fellow. He, in, in psychological circles, he was the person that first coined the term learned helplessness, it's where you do various things to people such that they just um, learn to be helpless because they've been placed in a Kafkaesque situation where they've never had a choice. But after he did that, very famously, um, he then came up with a concept of psychological principles being used to benefit people who had no particular psychopathy. Now, that is to say, psychologists go and see people who have a mental disturbance or unwellness or, 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 or aberration, and, and they get diagnosed on the DSM, whatever the number is at the time, and they have a psychological problem. They go and see a psychologist, and they do various things, sometimes or psychiatrists. They, they deal with it using either drugs or cognitive behavioural therapy, and the idea is that psychologists and psychiatrists deal with mental illness and everyone feels better. That's the principle of, of, of how psychology has been used. Seligman said, well, how about we take the principles of psychology and we don't apply them to people who are presenting with a psychological unwellness, but we, we apply the principles of psychology to people who, who are just normal people and maybe they can, their lives can be improved by using psychology to a positive end. How about we have some positive psychology? Now, this was his basic principle, and he set up a few precepts, and we did lots of scientific tests, some of which I've read, some of which I've been involved in. Um, I used to be a member of the Positive Psychological Society of Melbourne University. I'm well-versed in, in various things, so I can say that the fundamental core of it is that if you spend time being positive about your life and reflecting positively on those things which you can be grateful for, then you will be a happier person, and indeed measurably more productive in the workplace, measurably more productive in your life, measurably more balanced in your social interactions. So the practice of, of positive psychology focuses on the idea of being well and well-being by focusing and actively reflecting and being grateful for the things in your life, both in the past, in the present and in the future. Now, Active reflection as part of the positive psychology framework is often associated with things like the power of positive thinking um, and such like and so forth. And there was a bit of a mania back in the early 2000s of, of this sort of thing. Um, and it's taken off in a very big way in two geographical areas. One of the geographical areas where positive psychology is highly regarded and you can get degrees in is the west coast of America in Los Angeles and San Francisco. The other place on the planet where positive psychology and wellness and well-being has taken root and is part of the educational culture is on the east coast and now in Perth uh, is, is in Australia. 
both English speaking, both um, both sort of have very similar cultural sort of assumptions relating to them, hasn't taken off anywhere else. It's a kind of specific thing um, to Australia and the west coast of America. Oh, it's, a, it's a development of the navel gazing. Um, actually, Jean, I take it. I, I would take exception to that. It's actually far more. I mean, I, I think. I think a more useful metaphor would be prayer. Oh yes. I think yes. a useful metaphor for active reflection on the goodness that surrounds you um, is far more reflective on in, in the notion of notion of prayer. So, if you find that the notion of prayer is useful to you in your life, and you find that the notion of active, positive reflection is useful to you in life. They're functionally similar, except one has a deity attached to it and the other one does not. Which is why I think you'll find um, positive psychology and the way it's actually dealt with in Australia. There are many, many people who are involved in positive psychology that are also active and practising Christians. Positive psychology and active, I, I would say, um, uh, proselytizing Christians often have a great deal to do with each other, which is why, indeed, people who have graduated, who have, have degrees in, in positive psychology and student well-being are coming out of the Australian Catholic University and other private institutions that have a religious bent. Extraordinary large crossovers. So... Here it is. What is wrong with students going around positively reflecting on the goodness and things that they can be grateful for in their life? Well, nothing in particular. But from my point of view, um, I have a cautionary tale because actively reflecting on things you can be grateful for in 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 an institutional environment has very natural and, to my mind, obvious pitfalls. And those are these. If you are actively and willingly reflecting on those things you can be grateful for and are succeeding in an environment, then all is well and good. This produces but, Pollyannas. But, well, it certainly does. It, it also produces a compliant workforce. But yes. I, won't, I won't get into the political, <laughs> the political aspects of that because I know Dale would, would love to. What yeah. happens to a cantankerous person like me? Well... <laughs> Or, or, or indeed, many, many, many of the people, many other of the people whose, whose company I, I really quite value, the cantankerous people, the people on the edge. In fact, we wouldn't think in fact, at all. the people who have genuine common sense. In fact, anyone here at 3CR that I've ever come across. <laughs> I think we'd be in trouble in these places. Well, this is the thing, because what if you say, no, I'm not going to actively reflect on the gratefulness of, 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 of my situation? What indeed, and this has happened in the past, what if indeed you use positive psychology or attempt to use positive psychology to cure cancer, which is what, what they're trying to do. They say, well, you have to actively reflect on, on the grateful gifts of the cancer that you have. Well, there are different um, aspects of prayer, I can tell you that. Well, you yes. You pray for different things. You just don't pray for well-being, I would think. I said, I, Unless you want to I be said a it was a close. I said it was a close. Well, I mean, let, let's not get into that or the metaphor of sheep. But um, with one thing or another, if you are not using the principles of well-being and positive reflection and positive psychology, and that means that you are not necessarily succeeding in the institutional environment, which is your school, then you can very simply be put on the outer. Ooh. You can say, well, the reason you haven't succeeded in your academic studies is you're not grateful enough for the situation and you're not using the principles of well-being in a a most effective and efficient way. And has this happened before, I would ask myself? Has, Has this situation happened before in the past? And the answer is yes. This is a bit like the Steiner School, uh, 
teacher saying that a child has not progressed sufficiently with their soul to be put up into the next class. Um, and it's affecting their reading. Well, yes. It's, it's something a bit unhealthy about this. I'm sorry. Well, any form of active self-reflection or programmatic self-reflection in a positive sense I find problematic. It actually has happened before, Jane. It can Obviously, um, active self-reflection is part of many education programs, including Steiner. But more worryingly from my point of view, um, it was first used um, in the penitentiary system of the 19th century. Yes, it was too. You're right. Active reflection yes. to solve problems, active positive reflection to solve the problems. And in the 19th century, it was the problem of criminality. Active positive reflection and indeed 19th century prayer was used in penitentiaries to cure the disease of criminality. Yes, but they put them in isolation in huge pantechnicons. The, um, they the put them in isolation to, more, to, to facilitate mm-hmm. active positive reflection. Active positive reflection and prayer was why they put them in, in isolation. It was which developed is, by, the, uh, by the Quakers in Philadelphia and it was really, really scary. And it was actually implied in Van Diemen's Land down yes, at Port that's Arthur. Correct, yes. And in Van Diemen's Land, the great-grandfather of positive psychology in institutional settings is the new model prison. And in the new model prison, they in, in the Panopticon, in the new model prison, down in Port Arthur, they put the people who had the disease of criminality and they were cured by active positive reflection and prayer until, of course, three years later they weren't and they went completely stark raving mad and they had to build the asylum. Next door. To Next the door because active positive reflection in institutional settings has very dramatic negative consequences if misapplied. Now, Seligman, when he started off positive psychology, by the way, he's, oh, he's moved on now, um, when he started this whole thing off, I'm sure, would not have conceived of a system where his processes of active positive reflection, which are described in, in, as, as the processes that would go on inside a student well-being centre in an institutional construct, he would, I'm sure, and he has cautioned against the institutional approaches, which is exactly what these schools have developed. And Jean is right. Jean is right. Not only are these schools not necessarily doing the best thing by their students in a general social context by making them expect that they'll have hydraulic swimming pools and how can you possibly play basketball outside when it's raining... No one does that Are in my school. Are these girls going to get a job? Girls and boys, Jane. Girls and boys. Girls and boys, Jane. Girls and boys, Jane. Girls and boys. It's yeah. not just the girls. Um, no, I'm just thinking of the girls... Uh, Anglican Girls Grammar at South Yarra are the little girls who are enrolled there um, going to be given expectations, uh, positive expectations, positive well-being expectations that when they leave school they will have hydraulic swimming pools (laughs) wherever they live. I mean they'll have to either get a tremendously well-paid job or else marry the right bloke. So how are they going to um, solve these problems? My concern is, Jane, not just that, but if someone has been through a student wellness centre and has some sense that positive reflection upon their circumstances is mandatory in all situations for their benefit, once they leave their school and suffer the outrageous slings and arrows in the real world, Mm -hmm. um, they might find themselves to be unsupported and less resilient in quite dramatic ways. Yes. I mean, 
this is all for the future. These, these things have now produced a few years of graduates and we'll see what happens. Um, I'm sure a lot of these students, by the very function of the fact that they have, by definition, come from wealthy families, if they do fall, won't be falling too far. Um, but I just find this whole process to be actually disturbing. And just to point out, this is only going on in two sort of base places in the world. I mean, there's a little bit on the on, on the east coast of, of the United States, but not all that much. It's the west coast of, of America and, and Australia. This, this also just, just, just as a completely different thing, various um, mental, mental, mental and physical illnesses do happen in sort of pandemic ways. And the last time this sort of happened, it was back in the 90s and the 80s when they had RSI, yeah. which again, RSI only happened in the west coast of America and Australia. It didn't actually happen anywhere else in the world. But um, that's just on a complete side note. It has nothing to do with education at all. I'm sorry for that last little note. Good news from America before we go, if we want to have a sense of well-being as we leave the uh, 3CR. The Senate has rejected the Trump budget cuts and reducing school choice requests. The Education Week reports on decisions made by the Senate and the House committees that preserve programs targeted for deep cuts by the Trump administration and sharp rebuffs to Trump's plans to expand school choice. However, the federal appropriations for charter schools was increased by $25 million, which unfortunately is a big victory for DeVos and a rebuff to the uh, public school interests. But um, it, it, it's not Trump getting all his own way with school choice. So uh, we'll talk more about that next week. And uh, our time is gone. Very interesting time here we have at 3CR, so it's bye for now. We'll be back next week to talk about news, views, interviews and reviews um, on our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But also, of course, on 3CR, 855 and AM dial next weekend on a Saturday at noon. That's goodbye from us. Yes, goodbye from us until next week.
San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize. It's there you find your hill. It's there you find your hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night. Alive as you and me, says I. But Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died.